I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect having the form of religion without the power, and this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. This quote from John Wesley's Thoughts Upon Methodism, written in 1786, is probably one of the most quoted lines from any of Wesley's works because it talks about the fear that John Wesley had toward the end of his life that Methodism would would not continue in the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which it first set out. In fact, he already had been seeing cracks in the movement at this point. And many people use this quote now to talk about the state of Methodism today, and not without reason. As I've been reading through The New Methodism, this book that's been published by a number of traditional Methodist scholars, this quote comes up quite often. And the idea is, how do we recapture that doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which the first Methodists set out? I think that's a key question for us and a key question for us to look at as we look at Thoughts Upon Methodism today in this edition of Wednesdays with Wesley. My name is Bob Kaler. I'm the pastor of Tri-Lakes United Methodist Church in Monument, Colorado, and this is the podcast where we dive deep into Wesley's writings and sermons, and this one's not strictly a sermon, but I think it is an important piece. It's a short piece that appeared in the Armidian Magazine in 1787. With, uh, with some reflections from Wesley on the movement, a little bit of the history of the movement, but also explaining to some degree what he means by doctrine, spirit, and discipline. First, he talks about doctrine. Now, when we think of doctrine, we'll go to our book of discipline, we'll look up the articles of religion, we'll look up all of the different theological task documents that are there in our United Methodist Book of Discipline. Other Methodist traditions probably have something very similar. But what Wesley says here is that the fundamental doctrine that he's talking about is the Bible. Here's what he says. What was their fundamental doctrine, the early Methodists? That the Bible is the whole and sole rule, both of Christian faith and practice. I love that that line. It's the whole and sole rule of both Christian faith and practice. And it's from the Bible that Methodists draw their doctrine. Hence, they learn, first, Wesley says that religion is an inward principle, that it is no other than the mind that was in Christ. Or in other words, the renewal of the soul after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness. This is the very definition of sanctification. It's a biblical doctrine, and it's the most key biblical doctrine for Wesley, that we can have the mind of Christ, that we are being renewed in the image of God in righteousness and true holiness or Christian perfection. But secondly, Wesley says, we also learn from the scriptures that this can never be wrought in us, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we talked with Madeline in the last episode The power of the Holy Spirit is key in understanding Wesleyan theology, that none of what happens with us in sanctification happens on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And thirdly, Wesley says that what Methodists drew from the Bible doctrinally is that we receive this and every blessing merely for the sake of Christ. We don't receive them for our own sake. We receive them so that we may be people who reflect the mind of Christ and the way of Christ. And then lastly, that biblical doctrine is given to us, 
that whosoever hath, hath the mind that was in Christ, the same as our brother and sister and mother. So our connection to other Christians is all around this idea of growing in the mind of Christ, growing in the image of God. And anyone who's doing that with us is our brother and sister and mother. That defines the Methodist family. I think that those first two paragraphs are are key to understanding Methodism at its essence. You might want to look those up and kind of commit them to memory because I think here, here at, near the end of his life, Wesley is giving us a very solid definition of what it means to be Methodist. And then he goes on in, the, in Thoughts Upon Methodism to describe how this movement evolved. In the year 1729, four young students in Oxford agreed to spend their evenings together. They were all zealous members of the Church of England. They had no particular opinions or peculiar opinions, but were distinguished only by their constant attendance on the church and sacrament. 1735, they increased to 15 when the chief of them embarked for America, Wesley's talking about himself, intending to preach to the heathen Indians. But at that point, Wesley says, Methodism seemed to die away. But it was revived again in the year 1738. Remember what happened in the year 1738? That was Aldersgate, May 24th, 1738. And shortly thereafter, Wesley began to preach in the fields, because he was not allowed to preach in the churches. The version of this I'm reading as Wesley kind of switching to the third person here, which I find interesting. Perhaps it's for emphasis. But people were coming to these field preaching events, coming to inquire, Wesley says, what they must do to be saved. He desired them to meet him all together, which they did, and they increased continually in number. In November, a large building, the foundry, being offered to him, he began preaching therein morning and evening at five in the morning and seven in the evening that the people's labor might not be hindered. Now, we had a little taste of the foundry in the last episode called that uh, meeting on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, 1739, kind of the Methodist Pentecost that happens there in the foundry, the first Methodist meeting house. And Wesley describes the meetings of the society there. He says, from the beginning, men and women sat apart, as they always did in the primitive church. None were suffered to call any place their own. I love that because at our churches, we tend to claim seats. Uh, Back in Wesley's day, people would actually rent pews in the Anglican church. But here in the foundry, they had no pews. All the benches for rich and poor were of the same construction. No one had a reserved seat. And the basic meeting of the society was Wesley would begin the service with a short prayer, then a hymn was sung, and then he preached, usually about half an hour, it says, and then sung a few verses of another hymn and concluded with a prayer. So it was a preaching service primarily. Remember, Methodism is a reform movement within Anglicanism. Wesley's not trying to set up a separate church. He's not trying to act as the Anglican priest in this context, It's a preaching service for these Methodists. But I find it interesting that he says he preached usually about half an hour. It reminds me of what George Whitfield once said. He said, if you preach longer than 30 minutes, you should be an angel or have angels for listeners. We like to think of Methodist preaching lasting for hours, but that wasn't the case. But what Wesley preached, he says, was the constant doctrine that was salvation by faith preceded by repentance and followed by holiness. Again, all drawn from the scriptures. 
But then Wesley goes on and he's, again, he's kind of recounting the history of the movement at this point. A large number of people joined together, but the great difficulty, he said, was to keep them together for they were continually scattering hither and thither and we knew no way to help it. But God provided this also when we thought not of it. And he goes on to describe the origin of the class meeting, which was kind of a happy accident or providence, if you will, that they were needing to raise money to pay the debt on the building of the Methodist Meeting House in Bristol, the new room, which you can visit today. I recommend it if you're ever in the UK and get a chance to go to Bristol. It's really a marvelous uh, place. If you've never seen it, uh, if you've ever watched the PBS series Dark, a trial takes place in Dark, and the trial actually takes place. It takes place in a courthouse, but but it's actually shot in the new room, which is really cool to see that if you're a metho nerd like I am, to see this, uh, this uh, show being shot here in a very historic place for us as Methodists. But to raise the money to pay the debt for the new room, uh, a man named Captain Foy, who was a member of the society, stood up and he said, let everyone in the society give a penny a week and it will easily be done. That's a, a great a great stewardship uh, approach to to be able to have uh, that that kind of gathering together of people and say, we're all going to pay this amount of money right here at the moment. But one of the people said to Captain Foy, many of these folks have not a penny to give. True, said the captain, then put 10 or 12 of them to me. Let each of these give what they can weekly and I will supply what is wanting. So many others made the same offer. So what in effect is happening here again is this society is being divided up into groups of 10 or 12 and a class leader is becoming responsible for them to ask for a penny or if not able to get a penny from each person to pay that themselves. So Wesley divided the societies among them. He assigned a class of about 12 persons to each of these who were termed leaders, later called class leaders. And when these class leaders went around to to talk to people about giving this penny, they learned a lot of things about what were going on in their lives. Wesley says that not long after, one of them informed him that calling on such a one in his house, he found him quarreling with his wife. Another was found in drink. And it immediately struck in Wesley's mind, this is the very thing we wanted. These leaders are the people who may not only receive the contributions, but also watch over the souls of their brethren. So the society in London being informed of this willingly followed the example of that in Bristol. And so this began to spread through the Methodist movement, this idea of gathering into classes, not only inquiring for paying the debt, but inquiring after the souls of people, what was going on in their lives. The class leaders became sort of like visitation ministers and leaders of the church, lay pastors in in many ways. And that was the origin of the class meeting. And Wesley says, by this means, it was easily found if any grew weary or faint and help was speedily administered. And if any walked disorderly, they were quickly discovered and either amended or dismissed. That's the basic origin of the class meeting. And then those who were in the class meeting who felt that they were further awakened 
For those who knew in whom they had believed, says Wesley, there was another help provided. And then he goes on to describe what we know as the band meeting. Five or six, either married or single men, met together at such an hour as was convenient. According to the direction of St. James, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another and ye shall be healed. And then five or six of the married or single women met together for the same purpose. So the band meeting was about confession of sin based on what's written in uh, the epistle of James. And Wesley says innumerable blessings have attended this institution, especially in those who were going on to perfection. When any seemed to have obtained this, they were allowed to meet with a select number who appeared so far as man could judge to be partakers of the same great salvation. So you have the origin of the class meeting, the origin of the band meeting. Now remember what Wesley says at the beginning here, that Methodism could become a dead sect unless it attended upon the doctrine, spirit, and discipline. We know what the doctrine was, drawn from the scriptures. What was the spirit and discipline? Well, it was found here in these class meetings and band meetings. This was the DNA of the movement. And Wesley realized this all the way through, and at the end of his life, he knew that unless this continued, Methodism was going to be dead in the water. And what he says here in summary is, from this short sketch of Methodism, so-called, he still didn't like the name, any man of understanding may easily discern that it is only plain scriptural religion guarded by a few prudential regulations. Here again, I think Wesley is addressing his critics who always are talking about Methodists being enthusiasts or being way out of bounds or kind of crazy zealots for, for Christianity. But Wesley's saying here, look, this is plain scriptural religion. This is basic Christianity guarded by a few prudential regulations. The essence of it is holiness of heart and life. The circumstantials all point to this. If you want a short definition of Methodism, what's it about? What it sets it apart? It's about holiness of heart and life. And as long as they are joined together in the people called Methodists, no weapon formed against them shall proper, prosper. As, as long as we are focused on holiness of heart and life, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. But if even the circumstantial parts are despised, the essential will soon be lost. If, if we let go of this doctrine, if we let go of the scripture as our primary, and, and a side note here, so many Methodists talk about the quadrilateral as though Wesley invented that idea. That idea was invented by Albert Outler in the 1960s, Methodist theologian from uh, Perkins in Texas. And he was reading Wesley in a particular way, but you can't help but read Wesley's sermons and realize that for, what, for Wesley, Scripture is primary to everything. There is no quadrilateral where all these things are equal, Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Scripture is always primary. That's the doctrine that we draw from, from Scripture. Now, Wesley would also draw from classic Christianity, draw from his own Anglican tradition, but it's all grounded in Scripture. If it wasn't grounded in Scripture there, then it didn't really matter. And so Wesley says we have to hold on to this doctrine, but also the spirit and discipline, that as long as the spirit and discipline is lived out through these class and band meetings, those circumstantial parts as long as they are done, they will prosper. But if these are despised, he says, the essential will soon be lost. 
And if ever the essential parts should evaporate, what remains will be dung and dross. So if people are lamenting where the Methodist movement has gone and why it has become, in many ways, according to many people, a kind of dead sect, a mainline religion, a form of religion without the power, it's largely because we neglected the doctrine, the spirit, and the discipline. You can track it all the way back to there. About the early to mid-19th century, that has become less important. And Wesley foreshadows what's going to happen there and why it becomes less important. And he, he says this in 1786. He says, it nearly concerns us to understand how the case stands with us at present. He's talking about right now, 1786, he's already seeing the cracks form. He says, I fear wherever riches have increased, exceeding few are the exceptions. The essence of religion, the mind that was in Christ, has decreased in the same proportion. In other words, prosperity and respectability were the beginning of the downfall of the Methodist movement. Methodism flourished when it was kind of a persecuted minority, when it was really a movement among the poor and among the working class. But the more Methodism became settled, the more wealthy it became, the more people began to find respectability, the less emphasis there was on holiness, and there was more emphasis on simply being the church, being respectable, being good citizens, and so forth. The mind that was in Christ decreases in the same proportion as that respectability. I've been doing a series, for those of you who are members of Trilakes, I've been doing a series on the seven churches of Revelation. And what Wesley's really describing here, I think, is the church at Laodicea, where prosperity gets in the way, makes Jesus, I said it this way in a blog post, I said it's the kind of church that makes Jesus want to puke. It's so focused on respectability and wealth and temporal things that it doesn't focus on the main thing, which is holiness of heart and life. And so Wesley says, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. As long as the focus is on prosperity, on respectability, that revival cannot retain. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world in all of its branches. So here's the dilemma. The more people come to Christ, the more they increase in their diligence and their industry, their frugality, um, the more money people begin to make, we begin to see that doesn't always happen in Christianity. I think that's kind of an assumption, but people become more aware, they become more industrious, their riches increase, that certainly happens with the early Methodists, but then their pride, their anger, their love of the world also increase, and that begins to see this doctrine, spirit, and discipline begin to wane. So Wesley says, how then is it possible that Methodism, that is the religion of the heart, though it flourishes now as a green tree, should continue in this state? For the Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionally Increase in pride and anger in the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. So although the form of religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. I think Wesley is really describing 
and, and it is prophetic here about what's happening with Methodism, even today. A mainline religion kind of outside of the, the, the radical nature of the fringe of Christianity, respectability, church growth, um, don't rock the boat. We did this for, for decades, and now it's kind of blowing up. And the question for us is, well, what's next? How do we prevent this from happening? How do we get back to this doctrine, spirit, and discipline that we first set out with as Methodists? Is there no way to prevent this, Wesley asked, this continual declension of pure religion? Now, he says we ought not to forbid people to be diligent and frugal. We not uh, ought to prevent them from, from making money and seeking uh, prosperity. Indeed, Wesley says, we must exhort all Christians to gain all they can and to save all they can. Where have we heard that before? Yes, in his sermon on the use of money. He says, we have to exhort Christians to, to grow rich. But what way then, I ask again, can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell? There is one way and there is no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. So for Wesley, it comes down to what we give away, how we steward the resources that we have, always putting them in kingdom perspective. I think you could argue that Wesley's understanding of of wealth and money is a, a subset of his understanding of Christian perfection, of his understanding of sanctification, that the more that we are filled with Christ, the more we have the mind of Christ— well, what does that say to us about money? What does Jesus think about it? For Jesus, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. He says to the rich young ruler, if you want to follow after me, if you want eternal life, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. In other words, don't make this money an idol, but rather use it for God's kingdom. Be a steward of all that God has given to you. That's part of this process. The idea then is not about gaining wealth and respectability, but rather about gaining holiness. And if money is the thing that gets between us and holiness, then we need to start putting it in perspective. We need to start getting it out of the way. I love this particular selection of John Wesley because it's very short, but it's also very simple and it's very explanatory. Doctrine, spirit, and discipline. Doctrine from the scripture, the spirit cultivated in class and band meetings, and the discipline to not allow other things to get in the way of growing in holiness of heart and life. These are key things for Methodism to understand. I, I want to recommend another book to you. Uh, Scott Kisker's Mainline or Methodist is a marvelous little book where he talks about the difference between what's happened with Methodism becoming a mainline church of respectability and how that has changed what, where the movement went. And as we think about a new Methodism, we have to think about how we get back to these things. What do we need to do? What do we have to do in order to 
see our our movement move from being a dead sect to once again being a, a church that has not only the form of religion, but the power thereof, real religion, that inward principle, the mind that was in Christ. I think we have to focus less on structure. We have to focus less on respectability. We have to focus less on appealing to the world and instead focus all of our energy on growing in holiness. And that doesn't mean beating people over the head with holiness. It's not meaning holier than now. What it means is that we're pursuing the way of Christ all the time and we're doing it together. We need to reinstitute class and band meetings, not as a hopeful option, but rather as a requirement, I think, for what it means to be Methodist. That's the DNA of who we're about. I was asked to chair the Accountable Discipleship Task Force for the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And one of the things we recommended as a task force was that any new denomination that emerges needs to make class and band meetings a requirement for membership. And a lot of people throw up their hands and say, no, no, that's expecting too much. Uh, People have lives. They're too busy to do that kind of thing. Once again, are we going to be mainline or are we going to be Methodist? Will we have the form of religion without the power or will we tap into the DNA that actually helps us to grow? If it was happening in Wesley's lifetime, it can certainly happen in our lifetime and it has been. We need to go back to the beginning. Thoughts upon Methodism. A short little piece, but I think one that every Methodist should read in its entirety and in some ways commit to, if not memory, at least to one's consciousness as as Methodists, because this is what we are to be about. John Wesley's best summation of Methodism, I think, is found here in Thoughts Upon Methodism. I'll post a link. It's hard to find. I mean, you can find it in Wesley's works. You might have to dig a little bit for it, but it is a marvelous piece. And I hope that you'll share it around and uh, invite people to listen to the podcast. You can always contact me, PastorBK at TLUMC.org. I thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you back here again on Wednesdays with Wesley. Have a great week.